is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the U.S. Constitution was created on September 17, 1787. And all week long, we're celebrating and hearing stories about this remarkable document, These Remarkable Times, sponsored by our friends at the Stetson Family Office. Today, we're joined by the head of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. But let's first turn to one of America's greatest historians and storytellers, David McCullough to set the scene about what our framers achieved in Philadelphia. They're meeting in Philadelphia in secret, in in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed. Many of you, I hope, have been there. You've seen it. It's not a very large room. It's not a vast, impressive gathering place. And, And its importance to our story as a country to who we are and what we stand for could not be greater. Imagine these two immensely important documents, both of which are, of course, here, where we are now, were created there. And we're talking to Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, who is in Philadelphia, not far from Assembly Hall, which is what author David McCullough was just referring to. Talk about what David just said about this very special place. Well, it is such a thrill to be here in the National Constitution Center overlooking Independence Hall. Imagine coming to work every day and seeing the room where it happened, the cradle of the greatest document of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution, as well as the Declaration of Independence. It is such an honor to work at the National Constitution Center, and I hope all of your listeners will come visit us here in Philadelphia and also check us out online. You know, people, I think, Jeffrey, don't quite understand the exceptional nature of freedom and that it was not just rare, but almost unheard of in the 18th century. Talk about freedom. Well, that's absolutely right. Look at the governments of Europe, and there are a group of Kings and autocrats and oligarchs and thugs. There's uh, one small experience of democracy in Switzerland, but otherwise the framers are trying to create the first government based on popular sovereignty. That is the idea that we the people are sovereign, not the king and parliament or the senators or the, or the aristocrats in history. So they have this tremendous theoretical challenge and also practical challenge. And that's what created the miracle in Philadelphia. What problems, Jeffrey, were the founders trying to solve when they came together? They had this governing document called the Articles of Confederation. That wasn't working out too well, was it? It certainly wasn't. The Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent of all the states before anything could be done. And as a result, it was impossible to raise money to support the war. George Washington is at Valley Forge, along with a young soldier called John Marshall, without shoes for the soldiers because the Confederation government couldn't raise taxes. At the same time, the framers are afraid of mobs. In Massachusetts, there's Shays Rebellion, where groups of debtors are forming mobs and refusing to pay their creditors. And therefore, the framers are trying to create a central government strong enough to raise taxes and achieve common purposes like the common defense, but constrained enough to protect liberty. And that was the central challenge of the con- of the convention. And what a duality. And by the way, still the central challenge of the people today, the fights we're having today, Jeffrey, in large measure, some of them are very similar, aren't they? Well, they are. The strains that 
animated the convention resonate powerfully in American democracy today. The framers have been reading about failed democracies in Greece and Rome. They believe that unchecked direct democracies leads to demagogues and the mob. Madison says that all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So what they're trying to do is to create not a direct democracy, but a representative republic where reason will spread slowly over time. The whole system is designed to slow down the formation of majorities so that reason can prevail. And that explains the separation of powers, checks and balances, and Madison's faith that the extended republic, the fact that America was really big, would make it hard for mobs, uh, which he called factions, to mobilize quickly and, and that he figured that their passion would dissipate before they had a chance to do mischief. Obviously, these questions are centrally relevant today. Indeed. Let's talk about some of the key influences on the thinking of our founders. David McCullough in that same speech said, you are what you read. And I so believe this. What were the founders reading? The founders were reading Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and figures of the Scottish Enlightenment like Francis Hutcheson and Jean-Jacques Burlamaki. And these thinkers believe that we all have certain natural rights that come not from government, but from God or nature. And the whole theory of natural rights, Lockean theory, is contained in the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What's an unalienable right? Well, according to the natural rights thinkers like Locke, we're born in a state of nature with these inherent God-given rights. And when we form governments, we can alienate or surrender to government temporary control over certain rights in order to ensure greater security and safety of the rights we've retained. What's the quintessential unalienable right? The rights of conscience, the right to believe or not to believe according to the dictates of conscience, because our beliefs are the product of reason. And these are men, and they are all men, of the Enlightenment who think we, we can't alienate or surrender our powers of reason because it defines who we are. And then the second unalienable right is the right to, of rebellion, the right to change government whenever it threatens our retained rights rather than protecting them. So this natural rights theory was at the core of the constitutional design. And let's talk about what they were writing, because you had some great writers in that room. Talk about the Federalist Papers, if you can. Well, the Federalist Papers are among the greatest contributions to political philosophy of the 18th century, as well as being a practical defense of the Constitution. They were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay in order to persuade people to ratify the Constitution. Remember, after the Constitution is proposed in Independence Hall on September 17, 1787, it doesn't have the force of law. It has to be ratified by two-thirds of the state conventions in order to speak for we the people. So Madison, Hamilton, and Jay write these remarkable defenses of the Constitution. They're published in the newspaper. We have here at the Constitution Center the first public printing of the Constitution in the Pennsylvania Packet newspaper published two days after the Constitution was proposed. And the Pennsylvania Packet and newspapers like it published the Federalist Papers that people could read. And they would get them on carts or, you know, whatever the 18th century equivalent of newsstands was. And it's just remarkable how willing people were to take the time to absorb these complicated arguments of political theory and to debate them and ultimately to ratify the Constitution. And when we come back more with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, who leads the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Let's talk about some of the debates and tensions the framers were trying to resolve with the Constitution, starting with big states versus small states. What was going on as the states debated whether they wanted to get on board with this new Constitution? Well, that's one of the largest debates over the ratification of the Constitution. You have big states like Virginia that want representation to be based on population because then they would get all the representatives. You have small states like New Jersey that want to guarantee a certain number of representatives for each state no matter how big it is. And the problem was resolved by Connecticut. Roger Sherman of Connecticut came up with the Connecticut Compromise that based apportionment in the House on population and in the Senate based on two representatives for every state. And that was broadly how it was resolved. But it really is interesting that the question of how big the body should be was the central one that gripped the convention. And the First Amendment originally proposed to the Constitution at the top of the Bill of Rights wasn't the one protecting free speech. It was one that said there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be 6,000 congresspeople today around the size of the Chinese National Assembly. Uh, It didn't pass, but it just shows how central the concern over how big the apportionment should be was to the conventional debates. Indeed. Let's talk about now the structure of this great document. I want to play you a clip from Justice Scalia. Uh, He gave this talk at the United States Senate. If you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. (laughs) The Bill of Rights of of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights, that was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power. But address Scalia's point about this Bill of Rights, because most Americans are going to go straight to the Bill of Rights I think Justice Scalia is absolutely right. Uh, Madison himself said originally that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary or dangerous. Unnecessary because he believed the Constitution itself was a Bill of Rights. By constraining congressional power, it gave the legislature no power to abridge free speech and therefore there was no need to say so. And dangerous because Madison and the framers thought, as people of the Enlightenment, that our rights are so sweeping, since they come from God or nature, that to try to write them down might lead people wrongly to assume if it wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. So that's why the main protections for liberty, as Justice Scalia suggested, were originally structural. By narrowly limiting and enumerating Congress's power and saying it could do some stuff but not everything, they thought that they would protect liberty by delineating the executive and preventing him from being a king and forcing him to act with Congress rather than through executive orders, for example, which are now controversial among 
presidents of both parties, they thought they'd protect liberty. And by creating a judiciary with limited jurisdiction and powers, they thought that liberty would be protected. So structural guarantees, were, and then, and, and there's more. Uh, they, they wanted to separate power among the three branches so no one branch could speak for the people, and then further divide power between the federal government and the states to ensure that the states could check the federal government. So it was really the genius of the convention was its structural dispersion of power. In Europe, power was concentrated, and that was the most important uh, protection for liberty in the Constitution. And so they were doing those two things we talked about when we started this conversation. They wanted to both have a central government, but yet limit it and constrain it at the very same time. Let's talk about Article One and the structure of our government. The legislative branch, why was this the first branch? The legislative branch, the framers thought, was the first branch. They thought it would be the most dangerous branch. Madison thought that Congress would be an impetuous vortex, sort of inhaling all powers into its domain. And it was the first branch because they believed that it was the legislature that should ultimately make the laws. Uh, they, they didn't want to create a king. It was very important not to have an absolute monarch. And the legislature was the people's branch. And therefore, the people should be uh, the f- first. Um, but they really wanted to constrain the legislature. So that was the decision to create a popularly elected House and then a Senate which, while representing the small states, would also serve as what George Washington purportedly called the senatorial saucer that would cool the passions of the House, the idea that the Senate would be comprised of wise aristocrats who would uh, deliberate in the common good and would prevent the the populist House from doing anything too hasty. Uh, And Congress was given much broader powers than the Confederation Congress, in, in particular power over taxes, over tariffs over defense. Congress has the power to declare war and not the president, as well as this sweeping clause, as they called it, the power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated powers. And and Hamilton thought that was a very sweeping power indeed. And Jefferson disagreed, setting up the current debates over the scope of whether Congress's power is limited and, and how it's limited. But that's why Article One is first, and the framers really thought that it would be the most dangerous branch. Indeed. And the House, by the way, everyone goes up for election every two years. The Senate, it's six years. But not only is it every six years, Jeffrey, but it's a rotating six years. Why? Their model is Cincinnatus, who George Washington invoked, the farmer who serves in the Roman uh, Senate and then goes back to work on his farm after his service. And they did not want to have uh, representatives in all the time in order to protect liberty. Yeah, civilian in the end, a government run by civilians, right? Crucially important. Uh, And the military, of course, under civilian power. And George Washington, the former general, always presenting himself in his civilian capacity as a citizen. Indeed. Let's talk about the executive branch. This is Article 2. Talk about generally what the founders had in mind with this article. The president was given very specific powers. And talk about them. He really is. And it's it's remarkable how sort of short a list it is. Uh, he's given the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, known as the, the vesting clause. He's given control over the executive branch, which includes the f- power to hire and fire executive branch officials. Through custom, George Washington established the power to receive ambassadors uh, and some uh, other powers that are not enumerated. 
Originally, in the first drafts, the president wasn't even given the power over nominations of Supreme Court justices and treaties. That was exclusively in the Senate, but then the, the president now shares it. The question of how the president should be elected was was controversial in the convention. Uh, James Wilson and other populists wanted direct popular election. Madison wanted election by the legislature, and the solution was the unwieldy electoral college, which, as you suggested earlier, has failed to serve its original function of being wise, uh, you know, uh, Solon's choosing presidents of the highest distinction. And with the rise of political parties, which the framers failed to anticipate, quickly became a rubber stamp for the choice of the parties. But it really is striking how few enumerated powers the president has and how the office was completely transformed really much later around the election of 1912 when Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson insisted that the president was a steward of the people who directly channeled populist will and the constitutionalist William Howard Taft disagreed and took the old Madisonian vision of the office as a constrained chief magistrate. And now, as I suggested, we have presidents of both parties ruling by executive order rather than through Congress, which was the opposite of the framers' intention. So the office, which is now known as the imperial presidency, has been transformed in ways that the framers did not anticipate. Indeed. And let's talk last about the judiciary, or not last, but Article 3. Talk about this branch. And did the founders think it would be the powerful branch it is today? I mean, we talk about this all the time. Every time we talk about the nomination of a Supreme Court justice, it's big, big news. Is that what the founders intended? It is not. We know this confidently because our hero, the rap star of the moment, Alexander Hamilton, said in Federalist 78 that the judiciary would be the least dangerous branch because it had neither purse nor sword. In other words, it couldn't force people to obey its orders and relied on popular persuasion. Federalist 78 does established that the framers expected that courts could strike down unconstitutional laws. That was the power recognized in Marbury versus Madison. When there's a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of the legislature represented by ordinary laws, judges should prefer the principle to the agent. In other words, the Constitution has more status as supreme law than that of an ordinary act of the people's fallible representatives. But the court was by no means exercising that power much. It struck down only two federal laws in the first 75 years of its existence, Marbury versus Madison uh, in the early 19th century, and then the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857. By contrast, about 75 laws in the next 75 years and 125 laws or more since 1934. More with Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center and CEO, too, here on Our American Stories. continue our conversation with the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, Jeffrey Rosen. And all week long, we're celebrating the Constitution on September 17, 1787. Our founders signed that document all week long. All of this work is brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. Jeffrey, let's talk about the Bill of Rights. How did they come to be? 
Well, at the Constitutional Convention, Madison and other Federalists insisted, hey, there's no need for a Bill of Rights because you don't have to worry. The Congress itself is constrained. The Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights. But the Anti-Federalists disagreed. And in particular, three Anti-Federalists, that is people opposed to strong federal power, refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't contain a Bill of Rights. And at the National Constitution Center, we have this amazing room called Signers Hall with life-size statues of all the framers. And in the back of the room are the three anti-federalists, George Mason of Virginia, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Now you can pedantically pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering because it was named after him because he was the Massachusetts politician who drew voting districts. So they snaked around like salamanders in order to protect incumbents. So those three guys said, no, we're not going to sign. And animated by their noble protest, a bunch of the state ratifying convention said, yes, we will ratify the Constitution on the condition that you adopt subsequent amendments of Bill of Rights. So Madison, faced with this huge pressure from the grassroots, changed his mind about a Bill of Rights. It's one of the great evolutions in constitutional history. He cut and pasted the amendments from the state constitution and bills of rights that were adapted between 1776 and, and the 1780s. Madison first had 19 amendments proposed. They were whittled down to 12 that were actually sent down to the states. And out of those, 10 were adopted. And those are known today as the Bill of Rights. Let's talk about the people now, because the people are important. You know, McCullough in that same speech, Jeffrey, had said nothing had to happen the way it happened, A, and B, that those people weren't living in the past. They didn't know what was going to happen. They all journeyed down to this place in Philadelphia. And I think most people agree without this one man who sat in the middle of that beautiful hall. His name was George Washington. Could this have happened without George Washington? No, it could not have. He had greater prestige than anyone else in the new republic. And if he hadn't blessed the enterprise, then no one else would have showed up. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he really struggled over the question of whether or not to lend his incredible prestige to an enterprise that turned out to be illegal under the terms of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation said that any amendments had to be unanimously adopted but the Constitutional Convention pretty quickly decided that they would adopt uh, changes based on less than unanimity, something more like two-thirds. So for Washington to go there after having won the Revolutionary War and developed all that goodwill was an act of faith on his part, and it was that endorsement that made the Constitution possible. Let's talk about the four or five most important people in your estimation, Jeffrey, and in the National Constitution Center's estimation, who are the critical thinkers? And what state did they come from? It looks like, for some reason, Virginia and Massachusetts had tremendous input in this endeavor. They really did. And Virginia takes preeminence uh, because of the participation of James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution because he was one of its principal draftspeople, and it was Madison whose central idea it was that we should have a representative republic rather than a direct democracy that would slow down the formation of popular majorities so that reason could prevail. Other important figures, of course, we've got to mention the guy who threw away his shot, Alexander Hamilton, uh, who everyone loves from the musical. He's from New York. He is a champion of broad national power and of an extraordinarily strong executive and Senate. In fact, Hamilton favors an executive for life, a kind of elected king. 
which makes him an unlikely populist hero. He was no populist, but he did favor a strong national government in order to create a national bank and a thriving national economy. His great antagonist, Thomas Jefferson, wasn't there. He was in Paris. And uh, John Adams from Massachusetts, the other very important influence on constitutional thinking, was in London. So two big framers were not there. Among those who were, I'd like to give a shout out to an underappreciated genius of the Constitution, James Wilson from Pennsylvania. It was James Wilson who came up with the idea that we the people of the United States as a whole are sovereign rather than we the people of each individual state or the king in parliament or the state governments themselves. That was the radical innovation of American political philosophy that allowed Lincoln when he resisted the right of the South to secede to say, since we the people of the United States as a whole created the union, we the people of the United States as a whole would have to consent to its alteration. And that's why the language of the preamble of the Constitution was changed from its original draft, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantation, and so forth, into we the people of the United States. That was all because of the great genius of James Wilson. And then one final uh, Pennsylvania hero, I mean, well, two, actually, we've got to mention Governor Morris, who was the head of the Committee of Style, uh, which came up with a lot of the final language. And then Benjamin Franklin, who didn't say much during the convention, but who had great authority. And at the end, after the Constitution was ratified, he was famously asked, what have you created, Dr. Franklin? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. And that it's important to parse what that means, a republic, not a direct democracy. In other words, a, a government where representatives would deliberate in the name of the people. And if you can keep it, that means we, the people, have an obligation to continue to educate ourselves about the Constitution so we can elect representatives who will protect liberty in our name. Indeed, we don't have the oldest country, but we have the oldest constitution. It's quite a miracle that these guys, their thinking in the 18th century was just so dead on and spot on as it relates to the issues of millennia. It's amazing, a constitution of 4,000 some odd words shorter than the Facebook privacy policy, and that has endured so dramatically. The framers themselves, I think, would have been surprised by its endurance. Uh, Jefferson thought that you needed a constitutional convention every 10 years so that uh, people could rethink the basic structure of government. Madison completely disagreed. He thought it was a miracle, basically just wild luck, that the convention made of fallible human beings had produced this remarkable document the first time, and he didn't want to risk having another convention because he thought it could go haywire the next time. So there's something, I think it, you have to attribute it, obviously, to the genius of the framers, but also to the power of their ideas, the fact that they were channeling that natural rights thinking and that they were creatures in the Enlightenment, and they were so devoted above all to the power of reason, combining a devotion to popular sovereignty and majority rule with an insistence that that majority rule be reasonable rather than impetuous. That was the great genius. And then writing it down, the words themselves constrain and the words themselves endure, was an act of genius that has proved to create the most enduring constitution in history. Let's talk about property rights, if we could. There's that patent idea right there in Article 1. And for my money, I think what's so remarkable about this country is that not only is our property property protected, but our ideas, what's in our head is protected, and I think this is what makes America the leader in the arts, in ideas, in innovation. Talk about that. 
Yes, the the intellectual property clause was a, influenced by Jefferson, who believed that it's impossible to copyright ideas themselves because it's like a flame of a candle. I, I don't steal the flame from you if I pass it along, kindling a fellow idea, but you can certainly patent the means of expression because that encourages creativity, which was the core uh, goal of the freedom of conscience. And property is really important because Madison says – the protection of property is the primary object of government. Remember, he's really haunted by these debtor mobs in Massachusetts that he believes are threatening private property. But it is not a protection for the rich over the poor. Madison is very much insistent on equality of conditions. He's looking forward to the year 1930 and afraid that there might be vast income inequality that would make it hard for small farmers and small business people to uh, counter large corporations. But the whole Constitution is suffused with protection for property, and indeed they thought that was the main point of the Constitution. And beautifully put, Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, all week long celebrating the Constitution here on Our American Stories, the biggest story of them all, the story of our nation's founding, continues after these messages. back with his final segment of an hour with Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. And storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks. And this is Constitution Week here. We're celebrating it thanks to our sponsors at the Stetson Family Office. Jeffrey, since the Constitution's creation in 1787, there have been only 27 amendments. Talk about some of the big ones, particularly in the context of our nation's original sin, slavery. The convention refused to constitutionalize slavery or not. Uh, Madison centrally said, as Sean Wilentz argues in a brilliant new book, that the question of whether there should be property in men is one that the Constitution should not take a position on, leaving it up to Congress and ultimately to war to resolve the status of enslaved people. And after the Civil War, Lincoln, resurrecting uh, Jefferson's promise in the Declaration at Gettysburg, promises a new birth of freedom. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, passed after the Civil War, abolish slavery, guarantee equal protection of the law to all persons, uh, equal privileges or immunities to all citizens, and prohibit states, as well as the federal government, from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, ultimately applying the guarantees of the Bill of Rights against the states. And finally, the 15th Amendment gives African Americans the right to vote. So the post-Civil War amendments are a central part of our constitutional design and, as you suggested, remedied uh, the original sin and uh, are part of uh, a document that is increasingly inclusive, embracing the rights of African Americans, women in the 19th Amendment, uh, young people who are given uh, the right to vote, as well as increasingly expansive rights for non-citizens. Indeed. And what the National Constitution Center does, as I alluded to earlier, Jeffrey, is when folks go in, they're going to see opinions, uh, but opinions by the best and brightest on, let us just say, both sides. Some people might think there are more than two sides, but you, you do your best to go to the best sources from both sides. 
Talk about how you chose the organizations you chose and talk a little bit about these two sides. And I, I almost want to say one's sort of a living constitution, one's originalism. I think that may be too simplified, but for, for brevity's sake, describe the decisions and discussions you had at the National Constitution Center when, when doing all this work. Well, the core of our educational efforts that I would love your listeners to check out is called the Interactive Constitution. It's online at constitutioncenter.org, and it's also in the App Store at Interactive Constitution. And it's co-sponsored by the Federalist Society, which is the leading conservative and libertarian lawyers organization, and the American Constitution Society, the leading progressive organization. And we asked those two groups to nominate scholars to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So it's the most amazing and exciting educational tool. You can click on any amendment. Let's take the most controversial one, the Second Amendment. And you can find scholars nominated by both sides, Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, with a thousand words about what they agree the Second Amendment means, and then separate statements about what they disagree. So both Winkler and Lund agreed that the Second Amendment was designed to prohibit the federal government from disarming citizens so they could defend themselves against federal tyranny. But they disagree about whether assault weapons bans are constitutional or not. So by asking liberals and conservatives to explore areas of agreement and disagreement, the common statement is like a unanimous Supreme Court opinion. You can be totally confident that every word in that statement is agreed to by scholars on both sides. And then we identify the areas of disagreement. And that's really what the Constitution was set up to do. Uh, Justice Holmes said the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And by asking citizens to set aside their political views and instead ask uh, not what the government should do, but what the Constitution allows government to do, in other words, focus on the constitutional, not political questions, bring the leading voices together on all sides and explore areas of agreement and disagreement. We're trying to model the civil discourse that the framers thought was necessary, but most importantly, just to allow citizens to educate themselves about the Constitution. George Washington says that unless citizens are educated in the science of government, the whole system will collapse. And Jefferson says democracy cannot survive ignorant and free. So that is why is so urgently important for all of your listeners to go to the interactive constitution, pick provisions they don't know about, respectfully entertain the arguments on both sides, be open to the possibility of changing your mind after confronting uh, an argument on a different side, and most important, be ready to embrace a constitutional conclusion that might clash with your political views. In other words, you might think gun control is a great idea, but the Second Amendment prohibits it, or it's a terrible idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And the same question can be asked for any constitutional provision, and that's what it means to engage in the privilege of constitutional debate. And let's get to that point of the agreement. You know, today, folks hear about all the 5-4 decisions in the, at the Supreme Court But what I loved about that and still love about that interactive constitution is that point of agreement. And Americans agree about many more things than they know, but no one ever asks them to sit down and find out what they agree on. We instantly go to disagreement. Talk about those court cases, because there are so many of them, Jeffrey, that are nine nothing. Something like up to 80 percent of all Supreme Court decisions are nine to nothing. So there's a huge unanimity in the Supreme Court. Now, it's true that the really contested constitutional cases sometimes divide, but it's very important, especially in these incredibly polarized times, that listeners not assume 
that it's just always five Republicans against four Democrats. The current Chief Justice John Roberts has made it a premium. He's made it a central mission of his chief justiceship to try to persuade his colleagues to converge around multipartisan, often unanimous decisions. We have examples of those in cases involving digital privacy where the court nine to zero has said that the government can't search you when you're arrested and seize your cell phone because that's like the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. We also have unexpected alliances that unite liberal and conservative justices of similar judicial philosophy like that interesting internet tax case where there were a group of uh, five liberals and conservatives who thought precedent was really important and four liberals and conservatives who thought it was less important. So that's why it's so important to educate yourselves about the constitutional methodologies. We've been talking about originalism, living constitutionalism. There's also textualism, pragmatism, uh, an emphasis on the structural protections of the Constitution, and also natural rights, which we've been talking about. All of these are embraced by justices of different political persuasions and can lead in different directions. And once you've mastered those, then you'll come to think of the courts not in purely political terms, but ultimately as constitutional bodies. Indeed, one of the things we're going to press for here on this show each and every year is that National Constitution Day be a day in which all public schools do something really radical. They talk about and teach the Constitution for a day, Jeffrey, and we are hoping that your Constitution Center is the one credible source that folks can go to, that a superintendent of schools can go to and say, hey, look, these guys have got it all figured out. They're not picking a team. Talk about what you're doing about that primal goal of getting our public schools, particularly, to spend more time on the Revolutionary War, but more importantly, on this remarkable document called our Constitution. Well, I'm really thrilled that the interactive Constitution we've been talked about is about to be ramped up so it's even more accessible to students of all backgrounds and ages. We are working to create videos with Supreme Court Justices Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch about the First Amendment, and we're creating a two-week course on the First Amendment that the College Board, which runs the advanced placement courses, will require for all students who take AP courses, not just AP History and Government, but Italian and Biology, because we in the College Board think it's so important for everyone to know these basic principles. But it's not enough to make this great tool available just to AP kids. We must bring it to students across America in public schools, in charter schools, home schools, underserved communities everywhere. And the next version of the online interactive constitution will include videos, lessons plans, links to Supreme Court cases, all made very accessible so that any student and any citizen can learn about the essence of the Constitution in a balanced, trusted way that brings leading liberal and conservative voices together. So we're so excited about this. The Interactive Constitution has gotten 18 million hits since it launched just three years ago, and our goal really is to bring it to every student in America. It is a beautiful tool. It's a fun tool, too, Jeffrey, and this is fun. I think I want to leave with that. My dad was a history teacher. We took Civil War battlefield tours together. This show has done a 30-part series on Lewis and Clark. What a story it is, their story. And I think the hard thing for people to do is to know that this was an exciting time. Uh, It's not just a bunch of facts and dates. This is about our lives, Jeffrey. There's nothing more fun and elevating and satisfying than learning about history. These are human stories. They're all about people. They're about people like Alexander Hamilton, whose whose story from the scrappy immigrant to the most powerful uh, head of the bank to this incredible duel has just seized America. Stories like uh, John 
Marshall, the Supreme Court justice, who was so convivial, the way he persuaded his fellow justices to be unanimous is by having them all drink Madeira together, and they would all get buzzed, and all the cases were unanimous. And stories like the incredible John Adams, who has this uh, vision of preventing the dangers of Greece and Rome and uh, seethes uh, with a rivalry with his uh, former friend, Alexander Hamilton, who he believes has uh, gone over to the dark side. So it's absolutely not uh, – I'm just – I'm a law professor uh, at GW Law School, and here at the National Constitution Center, I feel like I've got the best job in the world because I get to learn something incredibly fun and interesting every day, and there is so much to learn, and it would be so exciting for all your listeners to just get inflamed with the joy of learning history and to do as much of it as possible. And that was Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Go to their website. And the interactive constitution is terrific. Go to hillsdale.edu. Their courses are great. The constitution courses are too. And of course, the Stetson Family Office sponsored all of this stuff. All of the content for National Constitution Week was not possible without them. Their materials are terrific too. Essentials in Education. Go to constitutioncurriculum.org. That's constitutioncurriculum.org. The American Story, the Story of the Constitution. Here on Our American Stories. is our american stories and now it's time for a segment by jesse and you never know what you're going to get when jesse does it and this one's just called more cowbell we're high up in the swiss alps and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells the cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animals, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells, were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free. Mm-hmm. 
And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. Arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with famed producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever! And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was... Um, uh, Randy Brecker put a the, he put a flugelhorn part on it or a trumpet or something in the in the middle part the that part so uh, and we didn't like it nobody nobody in the group liked it you know and so uh, erased that track so I said hey I want to do I want to do a triangle in that part that's what I want I really I hear a triangle in my head and they're like and the the uh, one of the producers, there was three, there was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out, and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said... Uh, Okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, be a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's it. So it's funny that uh, 
you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more Cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find Cowbells with more Cowbell printed on them. There's more Cowbell shirts, stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads... I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. continue with our American stories and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, our Faith in Action series, where we hear stories about how people of faith live it out in the public square from adoption to coaching and all of the other beautiful things that can be inspired by faith. And Alex Cortez brings us this next feature. In 1950, Jack Hurston's mother Mary and stepfather Hugo decided to lease a cavern. Yes, apparently, you can do that. We had no air conditioning, of course. And so Hugo said, Ha, we're going to do underground square dancing. Publicity of saying you could square dance underground in 58 degree temperature. Nobody had ever done that. I mean, sweating and square dancing went together. We made news all over everyone. However, their cave tours weren't quite a big hit with the pregnant folks and older crowd, climbing down 50 stories and then back up 50 stories to get out. So they built a frontier town attraction around it that everyone could enjoy, and Jack had to build it with his mother as his supervisor. We were building the railroad track, and Mary came down and said, Jack, what are you going to do about that big dogwood tree? And I said, well, Mary, the only place it can go is right through that dogwood. And she said, Jack, that dogwood goes and so do you. (laughs) (laughs) She had a way of putting words (laughs) as where you could really understand them. So I had no choice and I took the dogwood and she fired me. And I got fired a second time. (laughs) 
but it was worth it. In 1960, four times more people came to see their frontier town than had ever seen the cave, and they named it Silver Dollar City, which Jack didn't like. That's an understatement, Alex. I hated the name. <laughs> it belonged in Nevada and needed a casino or two. It was just awful. But Jack's humble enough to admit that he was wrong. What's now Silver Dollar City Amusement Park has more than 2 million visitors per year. In the Missouri town that it's in, they helped make a household name, Branson. And Jack and his brother Pete have built the largest private family entertainment company in America with Dollywood, Stone Mountain Resort, and the Harlem Globetrotters among their 23 properties. And their first property of Silver Dollar City had a frontier church called Wilderness Church from the very beginning. We were conducting services in the Wilderness Church, neither one of us believers, when we would invite pastors to come out, but occasionally they would forget. So Pete and I would go around behind the church and we would flip a coin. And whoever lost got to do the sermon. <laughs> and whoever won led the singing. Neither one of us believers. It was sad. I mean, it was, it was pitiful. It was always... Um, Let's see, I saw Billy Graham speak. What did he speak on again? <laughs> try to, try to, try to emulate Billy Graham as best we could. It was awful. <laughs> Just, oh gracious, people were so kind to us, we didn't deserve it. Married a Christian girl who was so influential because we had three boys and Every Sunday morning, she'd say, well, Jack, you might as well come go with us to the church. And I didn't go, and she never put me down or argued with me or anything. She just invited me every Sunday. Very strong witness. Man, that was powerful. Met a traveling hardware salesman, John Shanahan. And John was on the road all week, but... On the weekends, instead of picking up golf clubs, he'd pick up his Bible. And I was on his list. And every Saturday, he'd run me down. I thought, oh, here comes John again. Because <laughs> I, I was busy building a business and I was working seven days a week. And John was a huge interruption to my work schedule. But John was every Saturday for two years. I was hard stubborn. I said, John, I got to have proof. This is an emotional deal, this faith. So he brought me a book called Those Troublesome Miracles. And I wish I had a copy today, but it just took the 35 miracles of the New Testament and explained them one after another after another. And as a staunch I got to have proof guy, it became much easier to believe than to try to figure out how to explain away 35. And, and so I owe my faith to the Holy Spirit and John Shanahan and my wife, for which I'm really, really grateful.
And by coincidence or providence, Jack's brother Pete also came to faith completely separately within the same 30-day period. Shortly after both of us came to faith, we sat behind the Wilderness Church on a log and we had our first board meeting, pun intended, and it was the most meaningful time in our careers because it was a time for us to stop and reflect on what did we really, as new believers, what did we really want Silver Law City to be about? And so the culture that evolved really started on that log behind the Wilderness Church. Our vision statement is we best serve the Lord when we bring families together. And we're just blessed to be in a business where that's easy because people want to escape all the problems that they're facing. And so we give them a day or so of a chance just to have an enjoyable time together. And then our mission statement is we create memories worth repeating. And one day I'm at the employee's lounge, which I love because presidents and street sweepers all eat together. And a guy about 55 or 60 came in. He's working the parking lot. And he's caught between the sun and the black asphalt, so he's hot. Sweat dripping off his nose. And he gets right up in my face, puts his finger in my nose, and he says, Jack, I want to tell you about a memory not worth repeating. And I thought, it's working. You know, people get it with 100% accuracy. They oh gosh, no, that's not. But that is. Luke Stanley was six foot six and about that thick. And he'd worked 40 years in the paving business between the sun and black hot oil. And when he retired, he said, I always wanted to work at Silver Dollar City. I said, great. What would you like to do? He said, I want to be a street sweeper. I said, great. As long as you feel free to do anything else you want to do. So he would jig dance on the square. But one of those things that he did was he, with his own money, every year would buy 500 silver dollars. And he would wait until he saw a child, in this case, a handicapped three-year-old kid in a, in a wheelchair. And hmm. <laughs> I'm making my way to the hospitality house and I see this big, tall, lanky guy on his knees in front of this wheelchair. And he's giving that child a silver dollar and telling her how special she is. I said afterwards, Luke, what are you doing? He said, oh, shucks. He said, that's just something that I get to do. I said, where'd you get the dollars? He said, well, I, I buy them. I said, you bought your last silver dollar. We will furnish them from now on. We don't ever preach. We don't ever say, you got to go to Wilderness Church on Sunday. And just live it. Just live it. And Jack Hershen and his people are living it. And we best serve the Lord when we bring families together. And it's not a bad logo for people of faith. And we love to talk about people of faith here on this show because there are so many people of faith in this country and have been reduced to 
sort of single-issue politics, and my goodness, people of faith in this country are so much more than that, and disagree about many things political, but we come to our faith because we want to give and we want to love, and it serves a role in our lives. And my goodness, when we continue with this story, Jack Hershens, you're going to find out just how much faith means to this family. Jack Hershens' story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Jack Hershen, co-founder of Hershen Family Entertainment, which is the largest family-owned entertainment company in America with Dollywood, Stone Mountain Resort, the Harlem Globetrotters, and Silver Dollar City in Branson among their 23 properties in six states. And now we return to Jack's story of bringing families closer together through attractions that are safe and fun for families, and they're harder, folks, and harder to find. And by the way, that's from Dollywood to Branson. Let's return to Jack speaking about his biological father. He was an alcoholic, never held a job, was totally dependent upon his dad. He and my mother were divorced when I was two. I still have the memory as a two-year-old running away from home. It's just terrifying as a young person to hear your parents yelling. Just terrifying. That's what I was running from. I had just been given red ball jet tennis shoes. And as long as I had those tennis shoes, I thought I would be fine. (laughs) But he was warm. He would come to my wrestling matches when my mom and my stepdad never did. So we had a relationship, but the gift that he gave me was the fear of failure. At eight years old, I was out mowing lawns and proving to myself that I could survive and raise a family and provide. I fell trapped to the lie that it wasn't the quantity of time you spent with your wife and children, it was the quality of time. So I was our boy's Sunday school teacher, I was their scoutmaster, I took them caving, I took them canoeing, but I didn't give them quantity of time. After church, I'd go back to work. (laughs) So I was six and a half days every week. Uh, My wife cried on the way back from a vacation in Colorado because she assumed we would never have another vacation. (laughs) We'd been married about 12 years before I took a vacation. I was a real dyed-in-the-wool workaholic and I deeply regret that. I was very out of balance and I get to mentor six guys now and all six of them are now 
coming into a time where they've got balance in their life between their spiritual life, their family life, and their business. And everything I get to do is fun. It's, mentoring is not a one-way street where one sacrifices and the other benefits. Both sides benefit tremendously. It just It's a joy to watch these men and so much more fulfilled because I discovered balance that I, I did not. But, but God, you can use these things. You know, I don't know that I could have been as helpful to young men had I not made that mistake. And so it's just wonderful how we can learn from the good things in our life and we can even learn even more from mistakes we made. You know, I don't regret it from that standpoint, but interesting and slightly off track, I was reading somewhere a man who interviewed people on their deathbeds. And the question was, what's your biggest regret? Number one was I didn't spend enough time with my family. Number two was I didn't take enough risk. I thought, wow. You know, isn't it in, in our faith walk, in our business, I did. I think of that every time I go by a poor person. I pick them up now and ask them to tell me about themselves. But for years, that was too risky to me. I would never think to do it. I just found that helpful to realize that not enough time with my family, and I didn't take enough risk. Somewhere, it got in my head that God made us all equal, and God wanted us to treat each other like we're equal. So when I get in a fancy car, I just feel uncomfortable because it sends a message that I don't want to send. Sam Walton was a hero of mine, drove an old truck, and I just love that. It just feels right to not put up a barrier between myself and other people and other opportunities to serve people. So it just seems like a natural thing. We all live together. We had a CEO, Joel Manby, write a book called Love Works, and he took 1 Corinthians 13 and he applied it to business. And every speech I got a chance to hear him speak, he always would start with the same thing. He said, by a show of hands, how many of you all feel overly appreciated? And of course, everybody does exactly what you do, just laugh. And the point that he's making is, you cannot err on the side of appreciating. You can't overdo appreciation. We're so hungry for it. And the affirmation we get from it empowers us to do things we never thought we could do. It's just huge gift that you can give people. And one of the ways that Jack's been giving that gift is writing surprise letters of appreciation to people every day. I can't remember where the idea came from, but I've been doing it for 50, 60 years. It just seemed like it was the right thing to do. And I probably wrote notes for five years before I 
started seeing the concrete evidence that what I was doing with those little takes 90 seconds to write notes, uh, the good that they were doing inside of other people's lives. And then to go to employees' home and see it framed. Oh my gosh, uh, the power of, of encouragement. Uh, <laughs> I still, today, I start every day out writing two or three notes. Now, the thing that makes this a little harder is it's got to be legit and it's got to be specific. If it's general, you did a great job, phony as can be. We got a, we all got a phony filter. <laughs> we can see phony a mile away. So it has to be honest, true, and it has to be specific. So it takes a little thought to be sure that you do it right. We believe that we need to have Christians and non-Christians alike working in the organization. We never wanted to have people think that you had to be a Christian to work inside our organization. We work hard to make sure people know that that's not a criteria for being hired. And this has happened a number of times and the words are almost always exactly alike. A little embarrassed, say, you know, I'm not a believer, but I'd a whole lot rather work in a Christian culture than a secular one. But then that gives us an opportunity to hopefully tastefully witness to that person. And you've been listening to Jack Hershen, co-founder of Hershen Family Entertainment, the largest family-owned entertainment company in America with Dollywood Stone Mountain Resort, the Harlem Globetrotters, and Silver Dollar City in Branson, among their 23 properties in six states. As always, great work by Alex on this getting out into the field. And these are the kind of stories that make people think if you're not a person of faith, my goodness, this is what it really sounds like, folks. Jack Hershen's story. So many people's stories here in America. Our Faith in Action series continues here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when looking back through animation history, there are very few cartoons with as devoted a following as Scooby-Doo. In all of our history stories, and that's everything from the arts to sports and, well, of course, history history. All of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. Nineteen sixty-nine. 
America was approaching its 14th year fighting in Vietnam. A serial killer calling himself the Zodiac terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area with cryptic letters. Actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered at the hands of Charles Manson and his counterculture family of so-called flower children. With all this happening, the song topping the charts was this. Sugar Sugar was originally recorded by the fictional garage band The Archies, spawned from the cartoon series The Archies, which itself was based on the long-running comic book series. This version reached number one in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1969 and remained there for four weeks. It was the tail end of animation's golden age and the early years of television animation in particular. Parent advocacy groups like the now-defunct Action for Children's Television were pressuring television networks to drop violent action-adventure Saturday morning cartoons like The Herculoids. Fred Silverman, the head executive in charge of children's animation at CBS, sought new programming that would keep his Saturday morning block afloat while simultaneously keeping parental watchdogs off his back. The solution was to hopefully expand upon the massive success CBS found with the Archie show. So, Silverman contacted William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to develop a show in the Archie mold. Hanna-Barbera Productions were early pioneers in TV animation, having created shows like Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, and America's first primetime animated series, The Flintstones. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. The new Archie style show was initially called House of Mystery that would feature a teenage rock band and would solve mysteries in between gigs. Iwao Takamoto, an animation vet who got his start at Disney in the 40s, was assigned as designer of the project. From here, the series took shape as Mysteries 5. Much like the Archies, the band was also joined by a dog named Too Much, who played the bongos. Designer Takamoto, who had previously designed Astro from the Jetsons, took particular care in crafting Too Much by consulting one of his workmates a breeder of Great Danes. But after studying these prize-winning Great Danes, Takamoto ignored their signature characteristics, making too much bow-legged, with a sloped back and a double chin. When the show was finally pitched to CBS, the band was phased out. The name of the leader of the group, Ronnie, was changed to Fred after a subtle suggestion from Fred Silverman. An easily frightened and always hungry talking dog too much was renamed Scooby-Doo. Inspiration for his new name came while Fred Silverman listened to Sinatra's Strangers in the Night on a cross-country flight. CBS ordered 17 episodes and the show was introduced to generations of children on September 13, 1969 as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Just a few weeks before Sesame Street premiered. What's remarkable about Scoob's first episode is that it established everything that the franchise would be known for, from the plot structure to the visuals, making each episode feel unique yet familiar by inserting different monsters, settings, gags, etc. 
Let's take a deep dive into this mystery, getting some help from the gang who created the show. Jinkies! Jeepers! Zoinks! Come on, gang. Let's split up and look for more clues. Quick, do something, Scoob. <laughs> Here's the voice of Scooby-Doo, Don Messick. Well, in many cases, there are much younger children who don't understand that there are real people behind the character voices. And so usually they're kind of excited to, to learn that that's how the magic comes about. Here's animation historian Mark Evaner. Don Messick did the voice of Scooby-Doo originated, and Don was just brilliant at breathing life to that character. Here's the voice of the snack-loving beatnik Shaggy, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem. Well, I think Don got into the psyche of an animal that <laughs> was very much like Scooby-Doo. That dog was alive, <laughs> and it was, was a being, a human being. He just invested that character with so much personality and made him so funny that it's impossible not to love him. Do I get a Scooby star? We'll look for one after we're off the camera here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. I just got the idea for a trap that'll solve this mystery. Listen. Here's the voice of the confident all American ascot wearing Fred, Frank Welker. I would have to describe Fred as being uh, the guy in the group who has a license. And that's why the other kids have him around, so he can drive the mystery machine. Hang on, gang! The way that I got the part for Freddy, I was doing a stand-up routine, and within this routine, I did like a dog and cat fight, a lot of, you know... <laughs> and this executive said, you know, we're doing a show called Scooby-Doo, and there's a dog, why don't you come in and audition for Scooby-Doo? And I said, great. So I went over there and I got the script and I saw Shaggy. This is me, funny character. You know, and I'm always playing the straight guys. And so I sit down, I meet Casey and he's just fantastic. I said, well, what part are you reading for? And he says, oh, I'm reading for Shaggy and I want to read for Freddy. Character I wanted to do was Fred, and so they said, "No, we, we'd like you to read the the other character, Shaggy." I said, "Oh, okay. Well, uh, what is it you want?" And uh, he said, well, "Come up with something." And uh, what I came up with was, "Scoobo, buddy, old friend, old pal, it's me, <laughs> your friend Shaggy." Like what? My favorite, a double, triple decker sardine and marshmallow fudge sandwich. Open the mouth between the gums. Look out, stomach. Here it comes. They called me back three times, and the third time, apparently, they they uh, they saw what they liked, and so they they hired me. Well, gang, I guess that wraps up another mystery. Here's the voice of the bespeckled bookish Velma, Nicole Jaffe. My glasses! I can't see without my glasses! It was not my real voice, but it wasn't that far away. Velma lisps, I lisp. Velma has kind of a slightly kooky voice. I guess my voice is slightly kooky. I think my character set a good example for girls. They didn't have to follow around. They could lead. They could have the ideas. That's what I always liked about my character. Here's the voice of the attractive, accident-prone Daphne, Heather North. That's your cue, Daph. Right. Oh, no. 
My finger's stuck in the keys. I can't work the trick. Danger-prone Daphne did it again. Danger-prone Daphne. Yeah. Wait! Help me! The girl that had played Daphne for a short period of time had left and gone to New York to get married. Nicole Jaffe, David, was my roommate and said, get in here. They're looking for Daphne. You can do Daphne. Jeepers! I'm doing Velma. We could, we could do this together. This would be great fun. And I auditioned and got the part. And that was my first, really my first job as an agent, was getting her this. Together, these characters formed Mystery Inc. and embarked on countless mysteries to seek out the truth in their van dubbed The Mystery Machine. Predictably, the monsters always turned out to be humans in disguise. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along. And contrary to popular belief, the phrase meddling kids is never mentioned until episode 20 during season two. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. But even then, it was not muttered with much consistency, only being said twice in the original series. After season one of Scooby-Doo, the series was a rating smash hit. Up to 65% of the Saturday morning audience was tuning in to Scooby-Doo, and its popularity hasn't slowed down to this day. There have been many spin-offs, blockbuster movies, and merchandising, but the heart of the characters has remained. And thanks to reruns, a new generation of kids get to enjoy Scoob in the game as they solve their mysteries. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and that happens to be Greg's favorite cartoon. And he still loves it, and we all love our favorites. Scooby-Doo's story here on Our American Stories, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, always remember that because of our Constitution... And because of the patent right, intellectual property is possible in this great country for artists to have their rights secured in ideas like Scooby-Doo, Straight to Bob Dylan, our greatest movies, all of our arts and culture, straight from our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. If we can count on you, Scooby-Doo, I know we'll catch that villain. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.